Hello, and welcome to AgTech So What, brought to you by the AgVendic Group. I'm Sarah Nolette. We often hear AgTech startups making some pretty bold statements, like wanting to feed the world or to revolutionize the entire food system. But usually, despite being ambitious, they're only targeting a part of the system. Today's guest, Matt Crisp, co-founder and CEO at Benson Hill, is having a real crack at some big changes along the whole value chain, how food is produced, supplied, and even conceptualized. But it didn't start out that way. Back in 2012, the company was working in plant biology, using analytics and machine learning to increase crop yields. Now, Benson Hill is a team of 350 and fast becoming a vertically integrated food and ingredients business, producing high-protein soybeans and yellow peas to fuel the growing plant-based protein industry. When you're saying, I've got a closed-loop, two-sided business model with farmer engagement and this portfolio of products and crop innovation at the core of it, like, it's kind of complicated. It might be complicated to explain, but some big players are listening. Benson Hill, backed by investors such as Google Ventures, Lewis and Clark, Prelude, and Wheat Chief, announced in May that this year its intention is to go public through a SPAC. So, what is Benson Hill's business model and how do they plan to revolutionize the plant based protein value chain? Well, let's meet Matt, who started his career in finance, joining a VC firm as a research assistant and then eventually becoming the firm's managing director. Yeah, well, I mean, I had a really fortunate opportunity at a young age to start in an industry that most folks don't get to it until a little bit later, but it was a remarkable learning ground for me. Is it different? You know, I think in many respects, and I'm the, the, my shameless, of course, plug for food and ag investing and that VC needs to invest more in food and ag, I'd say that that's certainly picked up. But, you know, when I joined Venture, it was really, you know, principal focus, of course, around technology and and the life sciences. And I spent, you know, most of my time growing up in that industry in the life sciences. And then fortunately was able to learn and gain a lot of exposure to how technology and science, you know, could innovation really could take hold in non-traditional healthcare industries. So it's good to see it. It's good to see the space have evolved. And obviously there's a lot more capital being deployed into, into these categories we care so much about right now. I feel like ag tech often gets compared, like it's somewhere between software and tech and life sciences. It's kind of not really either. Is Do, do you feel like that's a fair characterization? Yeah. I mean, when we think about like with the, the technology that empowers innovation in these areas, there's more similarities than differences, right? I mean, sensor tech, uh, sequencing, genotyping, the cloud, AI, ML. I mean, these things are delivering innovation and cost curve benefits across transportation and energy and a broad spectrum of, of categories. So I don't know if I'd say that it fits per se. You know, similarly, though, we struggle with this idea that there's ag tech and food tech and agri-food tech. And, and I actually think if if we look at those bookends, that's actually a more fun discussion because we don't often pay as much attention to how they should work in sync with one another. Yeah, I think the um, temptation is to split them up and say, oh, I look after this sector, you look after this sector because VCs need to like resource their team appropriately to dig into different areas. But I guess, well, and this is what Benson Hill really does is kind of connecting the two and thinking about how they can become more of the same thing and look at them together. Before we come to Benson Hill, do you, like you were looking, I think in, in life sciences world a little bit at synthetic biology as well and some of the bleed over from 
approaches in the life sciences area into ag. Any kind of lessons or examples of how that experience has helped you look at ag differently? Yeah, I mean, that was really the impetus for me to get interested in the space. I, I would tell you that there's just <laughs> when you when you come from that world and, and principally are focused on human healthcare, and then you look over into food and ag eight, 10, 12 years ago, it's kind of uh deflating. I think it's, I'm going to use the word pathetic, how little investment and innovation was really occurring in this area, which constitutes, you know, more than 5% of our global GDP. It's responsible for all the food that we eat. I mean, my goodness. So is there an opportunity space? Yeah. And I think you, you learned, I didn't come up in food nag. I don't have a background in it, but you learned quickly that Again, a lot of those same enabling technologies can propel this industry forward in ways that it already has for human healthcare 20 years ago. And so harnessing that, capturing that is really motivating. And frankly, it created, I think, you know, and is still in many respects, a lot of opportunity for innovative startups, entrepreneurs. And, and maybe one other thing that I'd add is that, you know, when the pharma industry is really getting kicked off, and, and, and when I say pharma, I mean like the ecosystem of life sciences and small companies and entrepreneurs and contract research organizations that were delivering innovation in the late 90s and early 2000s, it was in a large respect catalyzed by the fact that all the really, really, really big pharmaceutical companies had laid off like thousands of people. And so you had this, all these really smart folks that were like, hey, I can do innovation. And, and it went from... of the new drugs that were approved for use in the U.S. came from big pharmaceutical companies and 20% from small, right? To today, 80% come from small companies and 20% come from big companies. And I kind of feel like we're in that shift right now where you've got all this consolidation with these really big ag seed input companies and others, and there's an incredible plethora of talent out there. And it's like, hey, here's a cool opportunity to take people who are super well informed and a lot of, a lot of interdisciplinary skill sets and pilot them towards innovation and opportunity. And, and maybe that's one of the reasons we're seeing more VC you know, pick up as well. I hope that that is true and that we get that talent coming. I also know that the shift from like big company to small startup can be a tough one. I guess, what was your shift like from the venture side to the operating side? Yeah, well, I've never worked for a big company, so I've never had to endure that that shift or evolution. <laughs> but the shift from venture to the other side of the table, for me personally, was really uplifting. I think I think I was, in many respects, born to be a builder, an entrepreneur, an operator. And while I liked venture a lot, and I mean, it, it was what a remarkable place to learn about a lot of stuff. You never have to really live with your bad habits, right? I mean, it's like being a consultant, and you go and you sort of, you know, do stuff or, or, you know, work with folks to try to do stuff. And it might be for a few weeks or a few months. And that's, that's cool experience. But seeing that through, I think was something that I always felt a little empty about. And so, you know, jumping across to be an entrepreneur and to bring something to life, you know, I mean, this all was catalyzed by the fact that you know, I was with what was previously a portfolio company and I got let go. I mean, it was like, you know, I got canned. And so, you know, uh, two months later, I told my wife, who was pregnant with our first child at the time, I don't want to go get a real job. And, she, you know, which is very interesting dinner How did conversation. That go? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she kind of says, well, 
what are you going to (laughs) do? And, you know, Benson Hill was, of course, you know, in its, in its embryonic stage. And and I I spoke with her about it and said, you know, hopefully, honey, we can work on this thing. And, you know, six or eight months from now, we can get it funded and then I can get a paycheck. And it was 37 months later, (laughs) I brought home a paycheck, (laughs) but but she, I think she, she's been also, you know, really supportive because of that, that sort of personal zeal and passion that I had for, you know, not only just building, but building what we're building, right. Which is obviously really motivating. So, so how did you even come across Benson Hill? Were you kind of part of the original idea or met the team or how did that all happen? Yeah. So I'm a co-founder. I'm not a scientist. Um, I'm a generalist. So, you know, I teamed up with some scientists who, you know, helped co-found the company. And and really the thesis was we can utilize, you know, the call it computational knowledge, you know, at the time, I don't even think we were using terms like AI, but, you know, we can use computational biology and the horsepower that these new analytical tools and machine learning could bring and combine that with human intelligence and, you know, plant scientists and what have you. And I call it the sort of early convergence of data science and plant science, right? Two of the three now pillars of combination at Benson Hill, and we focused on sustainability traits. And so we, we've hatched this idea that like, look, we can use the natural genetic diversity of plants. We can develop plants that can yield more by capturing sunlight more efficiently, converting it to carbon more efficiently. And that was, you know, the first years of the company. And then a few years ago, we decided, look, a lot of the same infrastructure that we built out, we call it CropOS as our technology platform, short for crop operating system, can be used for things like nutrition as well. And that was really a big a leap for us because we were saying that we wanted to move beyond the farm gate. We wanted to move beyond the farmer only model in ag inputs. And we wanted to go to a consumer model. And we felt like with a technology platform, we had the basis to transcend that to connect indeed the interests of, you know, of, of the grower and the consumer. And that frankly is where I felt like we as a company really did hit our stride in a lot of ways and have accelerated the business. Well, tell me a little bit more about that in, in detail. So a, like original business model, who was the customer? What did you do? And then how did you think about changing and evolving that? And where's it up to now? Yeah. So like in that initial model, your gateway to the market, the ag input market was really a big seed company. So, you know, we were in dialogue with all the big seed companies and we're talking about co-developments of traits and these kinds of things. But what you realize pretty quickly is that if you're not able to control your own destiny to, you know, your own channel to that market, which in this case was was really principally the the farmer, man, you could spend a lot of time and wait and, and probably participate in a pretty tiny manner on the other side of it. And so the evolution was, okay, If we can use the technology platform to evolve past the farm gate, we change the dynamic of who cares, right? Because now it's not just the farmer who cares, but the consumer, and that could be met through a consumer packaged good company or an ingredient company, a brand, a quick service restaurant. I mean, you, you really open up a lot. And then the second part, and this is important, particularly when it came to raising larger amounts of venture capital is that we move from a total addressable market that might be 30 or $40 billion to addressable markets that are you know, hundreds of billions and even trillions of dollars. So clicking down the value chain a couple places, right, opens up a huge amount of additional opportunity. And so 
And so now we're doing both, right? Now we're in dialogue with both of those types of companies, but for a portfolio of products that you know, is really intended to add value across the chain. Capturing consumer demands and moving all the way upstream to seed genetics requires a lot of different skill sets. Talking agronomy to a grower is very different than talking market research to a CPG company. For Benson Hill, pursuing the opportunity led to a shift in their business model. When you think about a consumer packaged goods company, and we had we hosted one of them four years or so ago, five years, four or five years ago, when we were really developing in earnest some of our very early CRISPR technology, and they wanted to learn about CRISPR technology. How could I use CRISPR technology in my ingredients and et cetera, et cetera. And we, we did this whole two, three hour on-site visit. And we get to the end and we're like, okay, how can we collaborate together? And they sort of all looked at, around at each other and they looked at us and they were like, look, we think this is really cool, but we buy ingredients and you guys are like three clicks away from us. So when you can ship us these ingredients, like call me because we'll be really interested. And what it, it, I tell you that story because it, it just, it brings to the top of your mind, like I've got to meet, if I intend to participate in that market, I've got to meet my customer where they are, right? I can't expect them to backward integrate to wherever it's comfortable for me. And so that evolution and, and, and re- realizations, insights like that, were really the catalyst for us just to go to our stakeholder base, investors board and say, look, we've got to you know, do the hard work to innovate the business model to meet these kinds of organizations. And and it's probably the only way we're really going to get escape velocity for the kinds of ideas that we're trying to put forward in the market. And we were, I mean, again, super fortunate to form capital around that. And now looking, you know, three to four years ahead since then to today, I mean, we're delivering tens of millions of dollars of ingredient solutions to these kinds of companies and others. And it's, I think, frankly, this marriage of technological innovation with business model innovation that's helped us bring that to life, right? When you had those original insights around, okay, we've got to work with food companies and downstream, and then you had to go to your board and investors, did that feel like a, like, what was that like? Was it like, oh shit, we're totally pivoting the business model. Are they going to be on board? Or was it like, oh wow, we've unlocked (laughs) this whole new opportunity and they're absolutely going to love it. I would say that at the time, and I don't think they'd mind me saying, but when you take, you know, venture capitalists who have a return profile, they need, you know, 30, 50% hurdle rates, you know, return rates. And you say, I'm going to go purchase some, you know, lower margin asset because I think that, I mean, and I'm going to spend your money to do it. I mean, there's a lot of like, what? You're going to do what? And so... We had to we had to really carefully analyze the viability of this. I mean, like I said before, I've never worked for a big company, right? We we needed to fill talent gaps to have folks who understood how to run a plant. You know, we we've built a, an organization principally around technologies and science development and you know that kind of innovation. So so yeah, it it was it was an interesting evolution of dialogue that took a, took a bit. But when we had some new financiers come to the table, they really, really, really embraced this as well. And, and, as, and as I think the collective group began to understand and truly appreciate that this is, a, this is a fundable concept, but it creates an opportunity for us to become a really, really big company over time. And that's a leap. I mean, that's a, that is a leap. 
but that was a that was a difficult moment in our evolution. I wouldn't call it a pivot. I'd call it a, a drastic evolution, <laughs> right, of our identity. Vertically integrating was a pretty significant evolution and not an easy one. But Benson Hill saw a big opportunity, especially with the growth in plant-based foods. It's true vertical integration where we're either acquiring or we're partnering in a, you know, a pretty, you know, initially what you would have deemed at that stage of our life cycle to be a capital intensive manner. So spending dollars on, on hard assets and on relationships and collaborations that provided us access to the supply chain. Now I use Dakota ingredients as an example. This is a, this is a yellow pea dry fractionation facility we own that produces pea protein concentrate in North Dakota. It's part of our yellow pea strategy as a company. It's the fastest growing legume in the human food, you know, protein ingredients market. We've got a remarkably strong program on the technical side that's been going on now for years and marrying those kinds of things along with the grower network, along with an existing customer base, it, it irrefutably is creating synergistic value. But that's the kind of thing we made a bet. And that was, you know, years ago. And now we're really seeing it come to life. Was it also a bet on the plant-based protein industry or like you guys started in soy and you've now looked at pea kind of, how did you know that that industry was one to go after? Yeah, that's a great question. So, I mean, we predicted, if it wasn't a prediction as much as it was a early indicator, but, you know, Beyond Meat popularized in a lot of ways, yellow pea. If you'd asked me 10 years ago, what is yellow pea? I would have said, I don't know, a yellow green pea. Like, I, I, I don't know. So it became popularized and it like soy, you know, are the two in of what are, are soon to be, I'm sure many, you know, drivers of base protein ingredients for the alternative plant-based category. Now we we're familiar, right? Five, 10 years ago, more so with dairy and that, you know, obtained a certain degree of market share. But the advent of the plant-based movement and, and, and particularly plant-based or non-animal protein, I say broadly non-animal protein, you know, there's a lot of signals that track back several years. It's obviously more evident to us in the last 18 to 24 months, given beyond, given the pandemic actually accelerating those trends, given the fact that consumers will pay green premiums now for these kinds of goods, whereas the data might not have supported that thesis, you know, even five years ago. So I'd say we knew we wanted to get into nutrition. We knew we wanted to reach the consumer. And this seemed like the most aggressively accelerating category um, to begin placing a bet on, not to be the brand, right. But to be more, as we like to say, this picks and shovels, like the back end, so to say. Mm. And in plant-based protein, I imagine it's attractive as well, because there's several consumer facing attributes that you can start to impact like nutrition, maybe flavor. I don't know, like requiring less flavor maskers or environmental properties around carbon sequestration or making them easier to extrude. Like what kinds of consumer facing attributes are you targeting just to bring that to life? Yeah, sure. So I'll be specific with like a, we call it UHP soy, ultra high protein soy. And, and it's really, I'll call it, it's like a product platform. The idea here is you, you can increase the nutrition density in the bean itself so high that you actually disintermediate some of the processing, the most expensive processing step that's required in between what today is a commodity uh, soybean and, and a soy protein concentrate, which is the number one ingredient, for instance, in the Impossible Burger. So if you can ratchet up nutrition density 
such that you disintermediate that, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're offering more protein in the immediate term, but you're offering the same amount of protein, but you're ripping out a huge amount of the cost infrastructure that's required to produce that ingredient and the carbon and the water that has to go into that, right? Not to mention that because it's fully integrated and I can look all the way back to the field from which these crops came, I can tell you, did this farmer use regenerative practices? You know, what kind of applications did, did they use? And, and then over time, due to the point you made earlier, you have, we have databases of, you know, these beans and we can understand their amino acid profiles, their flavor profiles, and we're selecting for those things such that we can continuously improve upon them and screen against them. And then, and then the last thing, and I think this is frankly the most important one that really doesn't get talked about very much at all, and that is affordability. Like the real magnificent unlock, I think, of this category, it's going to be, you know, can I buy it? Like, and, and I mean by I, the proverbial mass market. If we cannot get a better cost profile to this stuff down to the consumer level, we're not going to realize the latent demand that's there. It's just not, you're not going to get to it. How do you balance that with the facts that we spend, you know, single digit percents of income on food and to kind of truly move the needle, maybe we need to be actually paying more yet. There is, you know, significant issues around food insecurity. Like at some point someone's sitting without a chair and the music stopped, I guess, how do you, how do those kind of two facts sit with you? Yeah, we spend in the United States more just on diet related chronic disease per year than we do on all food that we eat combined. Right. I mean, I actually mentioned this to our farmer partners in a session last week as well. And I mean, you want to talk about ridiculous and we're so productive when we've done such a good job of producing these calories and you, and you say like, look, we've created a system indeed of, of abundance. And I'd argue that we've gone from, you know, a dialogue around food security or insecurity to really what is more importantly needs to be a dialogue around nutrition security or insecurity, right? And so should we consumers who can afford it be willing to pay more for food proportionally, you know, to how we spend our income? Absolutely. But there's a lot of folks who, you know, are spending everything that they can afford to spend on food. And they're not being given the nutrition that they deserve, right? And so that I think is the paradigm of unlock, where we don't we don't necessarily have to upend the system, but we've got to embrace the the notions of how we've produced at scale, which is great, and and use that infrastructure at a lot of levels. But we've got to do it in a manner that's delivering outcomes that translate to human health. And in talking about delivering new types of food at scale, Matt uses Amazon as an analogy. When we think about Amazon and and what it did for, you know, folks who write books, you know, authors, you previously had to go through sort of filter of, I call it the the ivory tower model of somebody up there is going to tell me whether I'm worthy or not. And, And in an Amazon model, similar for musicians, you, you can create this sort of long tail effect and you can open up access to markets to people who were previously not granted that under the traditional schema. Think about plants and, and all that they have to offer. All the natural genetic diversity is content, right? But similarly, content that we deserve to have accessible to us, it's there. I mean, man, it's there, 
right? But the innovators have never really been empowered to bring that out, bring that to bear, to bring that to a channel, to bring that to a consumer. I think over the next 5, 10, 20 years, we'll see this long tail effect where the cost curves of enabling technologies and the synergies that exist indeed between food science and plant science and data science that we're really investing in become much more broadly accessible so that you've you've effectively got an ecosystem of innovation and you can create more custom personalized you know nutrition solutions delivered by the diets that we consume i'm excited about it. i mean i get super riled up i love that as a as a concept but you you do and are still working at the constraints of biology biology is generally pretty slow right we're not innovating microbes where we can turn them over every day we're innovating plants so we actually have to grow them out we're doing everything we possibly can to accelerate the speed of biology to work at the constraints of the systems that we that we use to create this nutrition and you know my true hope is that in the next years we'll see this amazon paradigm occur whereby indeed we we can access that long tail we can break away from the extremely restrictive diversity of genetics that we've that we've currently you know effectively decided to consume <laughs> right i think one stat is you know we 99.9% of our calories come from less than 0.1% of genetic diversity of plants i mean like come on we can do better than that right yeah it's super exciting one of the things that's had to change in the amazon analogy is the like actual physical and logistics infrastructure of connecting supply and demand as much as the virtual marketplace how do you see this world changing the physical supply chains and i don't know if you've got mm-hmm. any examples even if it's 10 years in the future and and science fictiony <laughs> well you know localized supply chains are are definitely a topic of conversation that you know, and when I say localized, we, we maybe went from, in some people's lens, a global supply chain to a, a national supply chain or even a regional supply chain as a, as a goal to account for, you know, black swan events and, and disruptions like we've experienced in the last 18 months. So is it a topic of conversation? Yeah. But I think that it's an outgrowth of just a general thematic to decommoditize, you know, in many respects, the system that that's a word that I, I, I actually love that word. And it gets thrown around but a lot more recently. And what we got to remember, though, is that decommoditization doesn't necessarily mean niche or specialty. Those things tend to be viewed from an investor return perspective and from a supply chain perspective is mostly a pain in the butt, right? Oh my gosh, like you want to trace around this tiny little amount of that, that, and, and in reality, there's so much that we can learn from the massive scalable systems that we've got. So you don't need to chunk it up and have like, you know, this row of this field in Wisconsin goes to that grocery store. And it, it, we, we can get there. That's, that's very aspirant and that's great. And we could probably do it pretty efficiently with blockchain and some other things, but you don't have to. I mean, a lot of these things can be produced in an organized way and then routed in a responsible way that isn't embarking on, you know, unsustainable transportation practices and other things, which could break the whole thing, you can achieve a degree of scale in a decommoditized context. So are we, is that going to take time? Heck yeah. And are we going to have to have some, some wins, you know, in order to see that more broadly adopted? Yeah, that that's certainly the case. 
there are clearly a lot of pieces that still need to fall into place before we'll see decommoditized, genetically diverse, affordable, and scalable supply chains and foods. And to get there, we absolutely must involve growers. Benson Hill recently launched their Food System Innovators Program, where early adopter farmers help test technologies and crop traits. What we're learning is, of course, you, you want, you want as, a, as a partnership, you and our farmers want to be able to use the same farm equipment, to be able to use you know, the same input suppliers often, right? We're not, we're not trying to change that. We, we don't want to change in any drastic way the practices because you create adoption risk, what have you. It is a shift for some growers we work with to, to grow non-GMO. So all the beans that we grow are non-GMO. That requires, you know, a different kind of practice. I mean, it requires more tension. It, it ultimately, you know, this is why the grower is getting paid premiums to grow non-GMO to begin with. And, and we're working with them to identify varieties that, you know, that further enhance the, the pricing premiums and the value creation potential of those, of those crops. But I'll tell you, it's just an iterative cycle. And we're learning a lot from our, from our farmer partners. We're expanding our network. In fact, we more than doubled it since last year. And making sure that it's a dialogue and that we're not just showing up and saying, like, here's what it is we want you to do. Can you go do it? That, I think, has made all the difference. What's an example of that? Like, what's what's something that you've been able to take on or listen to? Because I think the I'm hopeful that the dialogue is moving towards, yes, we need early adopters involved. Yes, we need to think about ways to engage them. It has to be a two-way conversation. But then as soon as they give you feedback about something that's not on your roadmap and you've got other pressures, like it's easy to listen, but mm-hmm. then hard to go actually act on that. Yeah. Well, I'll give you a specific example. So we've actually looked at how we can collect data from folks and the growers, you know, over the last year kind of come back and said, look, this, it, you're adding work for me here. Like I've already set up this set of systems that do like 80% of what it is that you're talking to me about. Can you help me figure out how to make this more seamless and so we, we did a bit of back to the drawing board, frankly, to understand what mechanism would work best for them and provide the most convenience, but still provide the kind of data that, that we need and that we can think we can use to help them enhance their practices. I don't think we've landed that plane perfectly, but we've got a couple really, really strong pilots out this year. We got a couple really, you know, some, some early, I'll say feedback that's just really positive about how we've approached that problem and the systems that we've implemented. And, and it becomes this bit of a white glove kind of effect, right? We weren't intending to resource that. We chose to resource that because the grower said, look, I need you to get more engaged with me on this topic. And it'll be a win-win if we work together for several seasons and we've chosen to do that. And I, I, too early to tell, but I think that it'll pay dividends for both sides of the partnership. Yeah, I'm not surprised. I was going to ask about some of the underpinning digital infrastructure to get the data on like what's working, all that stuff that you guys need. I'm not surprised you ran squarely into the interoperability challenge that that everyone is facing and that they don't want to enter data into a new system, even if they are getting premiums. How do you think about selecting farmers for that program? Like you want people who are going to be giving you feedback, are willing to try new things, but also aren't so far on the adoption curve that they're not representative of others. Yeah, well, one good thing we have going for us here is that it's not like in order for us to meet our business goals, we need to go plant on millions and millions of acres. It's really quality over quantity. So we went from 30,000 acres last year, 70,000 acres this year. And 
when we think about that relative to the 80 some million acres of soy that's planted in the United States, it's not a whole lot, right? So I'm not trying to say we can be more selective, but I, I would say that we've been able to find, we've been fortunate to find growers who align very, very well with the values that we hold as a company and who, who actually understand. Neither side is blowing any smoke here. We understand that there's, there's a lot of value to be had to the extent that we can create a very bilateral communication style and engagement. Fair enough. And and what's in it for them? Obviously there's premiums potentially on the line. Um, How do you think about like incentives and and what's in it for them? So we pay growers a premium on every bushel that they can produce. And and so we've got a portfolio of non-GMO lines, but we're essentially paying them for, for three things. Number one, we're paying them for identity preservation, right? Meaning they've got to keep it segregated from from whatever other commodities that that they've got going on. Number two, we're paying them for the non-GMO, right? Because you know it it may indeed require you know more more attention. And then lastly, is we're paying them some kind of premium for whatever it is that is the type of crop that's being produced, and if it's related to protein content, if it's related to you know some specialty trade. So those are the those are the inputs that essentially define the incentives that that we can offer. What's the journey been like for you and going from, you know, four or five of you to 350 kind of moving, maybe what I'd categorize from founder to CEO? Well, you know, it's been a heck of a learning curve. I like to sometimes say, I've never been in a job in my life that I I was qualified to be in. That's certain. I'm certainly maintaining that pattern. But, you know, one thing I really believe in, and I saw examples of this early in my career, and I've just tried to emulate it is be curious. You know, I, I ask a lot of questions and sometimes people think I'm asking questions because I like secretly know the answer, but like 99% of the time I'm just asking because I want to know the answer. Right. And what it engenders, I think is some degree of trust, especially in the people that you can surround yourself with who are a heck of a lot smarter than you and who bring these kinds of experiences, which is what I also like to ask a lot of questions about is, how do things work and how they worked in the past and what hasn't worked. And the other thing I'd tell you is that in my experience, some, and someone actually came up recently with a better way to put this, but it was called like the art of tripling. So when you're three people and then you're, you're nine people or roughly 10, let's just say 10 and then 30 and then 90 or hundred, right. And then 300. In my experience, that is a really, really good indicator of sort of the cultural inflections you endure as a company. You know, when you're 30 people, kind of everybody in the company can know everything that's going on. Everyone knows everybody, right? When you're 100 people, you can't do that. And it's really hard to grow up if you came from being 10 people to now you're 100, right? That's a really big difference. And then 300, now you're like into system process world. And so those are those are things that fortunately I've had some good coaches and supporters, you know, who have helped me think through that and keep me, you know, I, I wouldn't say all the time, but a lot of times keep me out of the ditch. <laughs> <laughs> the way I've heard that explained is every time you triple, everything breaks. So like be ready uh, for it, which, <laughs> which it sounds like. That's a, that's a much more eloquent saying. way. Yeah, that's a much more eloquent <laughs> well, way of putting it. 
I don't know. The theory of tripling sounds nice. It's a bit more positive than than everything breaks. I want to come all the way back though to to kind of investment models as we wrap up here. You guys have just announced the the SPAC. I guess I don't know how you'd phrase it: intention or success or path or. But yeah, t- tell me a little bit about that decision and I guess any broader comments on the kind of SPAC model, especially for ag tech. Hmm. Well, ag tech and food tech, agri food tech. Let's say again. <laughs> Not the most common area for investment, not an incredibly well understood area, frankly. So what a SPAC does that helps that is it allows you to disclose information to prospective partners and investors, you know, in sort of a behind the curtain mode. You can bring them in and share much more detailed, confidential, medium term, even long term information and walk them through in a lot of depth, the substantiation of that. You know, you could have them engage with people under confidentiality that if you were just going public through a traditional IPO, you can't do that. And, you know, this is a a tough category, in my opinion, for companies to build trust quickly because the models are not super simple. You know, it's super simple if I have a consumer good or widget or a mousetrap or whatever, and I'm just going to sell it. And then I'm going to sell this many or this many and at this margin or that margin. That's a, it's, it's a, it's a pretty linear way of thinking and it's easily digestible by Wall Street. When you're saying I've got a closed loop, two-sided business model with farmer engagement and and this portfolio of products and crop innovation at the core of it, like it's kind of complicated. And so I actually have enjoyed the SPAC IPO process because we've been able to bring under the, bring in the tent folks who've just done a tremendous amount of diligence and, and unpacked all these layers of things. And then in turn helped us tell the market, the compelling components of the story in a way that that's led to a successful pipe, which we upsized and was oversubscribed. And in that case, it, it sits beside, you know, the SPAC that, you know, together hold the potential to bring hundreds of millions of dollars of proceeds into the company. And so hmm. we signed the definitive merger agreement in May and we expect to close and be public this quarter. So it's it's a really exciting time to accelerate the business. It's interesting you talk about that in almost the, the opposite way I expected, where when people are sort of criticizing the SPAC model, they say, oh, well, if a company goes public at this kind of early stage, when they are really complex, how do they kind of keep that stream of information going to keep Wall Street happy versus just private markets where the investors can take that time and can do that diligence? But I guess that's more comparing like SPAC to raising venture versus SPAC to traditional IPO. So mm-hmm. I guess you've, you've sort of turned mm-hmm. what, what I might've perceived as a negative into a positive. A- any comments on why go down this path versus raise another round and continue private? Yeah. So when we, we actually knew, well, not knew, but, you know, we anticipated over a year, well over a year ago, it's been now a year and a half that, you know, the public markets were probably an appropriate place for Benson Hill to end up. We began doing some pre-IPO readiness, or I'll call it public market readiness planning with an outside consultant who helped us sort of inventory the things that we would need to be doing on a roadmap over the course of the next one to three years. So when last year, you know, the SPAC market piped up and which, I mean, if you'd asked me 18 months ago, what a SPAC is, I wouldn't have been able to answer the question, but when it became um, what is now more popular to go public by a SPAC than it is a traditional IPO, we paid attention, we convened late last year, and we said, look, if we feel like this is the 
this is where we want to be as a company. And we had just achieved some pretty big milestones in that fourth quarter last year. You know, the board, we had a consensus view like, hey, let's let's make this happen. And that's it for another episode of AgTech So What? But before I let you go, I want to tell you about our 100th episode and ask for a favor. Yes, I can't believe it, but our 100th episode of AgTech So What? is coming up soon. And to celebrate, we'd love for you to be a part of it. We've set up a button on our website, agtechsowhat.com, where you can record a short message and maybe get featured on the show. We'd love to hear whether and what you've learned from listening. Have you tried some new technology, heard about a different business model or product, or a new way to reach consumers? If you were inspired in some way, we want to hear from you. So head to our website and send us a message. Or if you prefer, you can just record a message on your phone and send it to marketing at agtechsowhat.com. As always, thank you for listening. You can find links to the resources talked about in this episode on our website. I'm Sarah Nolette. Catch you next time.